I was a highwayman Along the coach roads I did ride With sword and pistol by my side Many a young maid lost her baubles to my trade Many a soldier shed his lifeblood on my blade Good morning, sweet, beautiful Texas. That's the Highwaymen getting things started for us on the Lone Star Outdoors show, brought to you by Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris. I'm your host, Cable Smith. So great to be here talking, hunting, fishing, the great outdoors, and all that implies with you fine folks this morning. Uh, I sincerely appreciate you being here, sharing a part of your weekend with me, as uh, we have got so much to get into today, and y'all know the routine by now. Pour yourself another cup of coffee out of that old beat-up thermos, that one that still has mud caked all over it from last duck season. Uh, Pull up your stool a little closer to the old campfire here, and uh, let's get ready to rock and roll. Because off the top, we are going to talk some coastal fly fishing with Captain Scott Summerlot. Uh, If you're not into fly fishing, no big deal, but Captain Scott is going to tell us where to locate shallow water redfish during the early summer months and then if you do enjoy fly fishing uh, then you'll definitely want to take notice of his favorite patterns and presentation as far as uh, hooking up with big redfish on the fly is concerned Uh, so cool stuff coming up there and also we're going to give away a pair of costa del mar sunglasses during that interview and uh, stay tuned because i'll tell you exactly how to win those later on in the show Uh, then uh, a very special treat Longtime friend of the show, Stephen Ranella, host of Meat Eater on Sportsman's Channel. Uh, probably, uh, in my opinion, one of the best hunting shows on the air. Uh, he's going to stop by, and we will recap one of the hairiest moments ever seen on Meat Eater when he got charged by a wounded uh, British Columbia bull moose this past year. Uh, and Steve's going to relive. Uh, that oh crap moment with us. And then uh, we'll talk some optics as far as how important they are when it comes to hunting western big game. Uh, we'll get into binos, spotting scopes, your rifle scope. And, and Steve's going to break down how he approaches glassing because uh, there is an art to it. And, and this is something that I think a lot of hunters get overwhelmed by or really don't have a game plan when it comes to glassing an area. So Uh, Cool stuff coming up with Steve here in just a little bit. Uh, What else to mention? Don't forget our June Photo of the Month contest is going on right now. We are accepting your hunting and fishing photos. And this month's prize is a Gary Loomis Tactical Series rod from our friends at Temple Fork Outfitters. And uh, this rod, I think, retails for close to 200 bucks. All you have to do to get entered into the contest is email me your best outdoor photo to Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com, or you can post it on our Facebook page. So, uh, either way, in our Facebook, of course, is just Lone Star Outdoor Show. Uh, also, our 12 monthly winners from our, uh, our monthly contest that we run this year will once again square off for our 2014 grand prize, which will be an exotic trophy hunt down at Coons Canyon Ranch. You'll get to join me, and we'll get down there and hunt trophy black buck or axis deer, uh, whatever you prefer. And uh, that, once again, is our 2014 Photo of the Year Grand Prize Hunt Package, which will take place at the lovely 
Coons Canyon Ranch in Rock Springs, Texas. So send us your outdoor photos. Uh, you don't want to miss out on an opportunity to join me on the exotic trophy hunt of a lifetime. Let's, uh, let's go ahead here and take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be joined by Captain Scott Summerlot, and we'll talk anything and everything having to do with sight casting to early summer redfish along the Texas coast. You're listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Trying to fit a square block in a round hole. Heart of darkness facing a thousand bloodshot eyes. We'll know when we get there. We'll find mercy. Lone Star 4x4 has everything you need to customize your Jeep, truck, or SUV the way you want it. They install lift kits, leveling kits, wheels, tires, bed liners, as well as color match spray line accessories, full exterior sprayed vehicles, fenders, steps, LED lights, light bars, car audio, brush guards, steel bumpers, goosenecks, toolboxes, performance exhaust, you name it, they have it. No job is too big or too small at Lone Star 4x4. Call 940-484-5500 or visit LoneStar4x4.com. That's LoneStar4BY4.com or check out their most recent builds on Facebook. Hi, I'm Craig Boddington. I'd like to invite you to become a member of Dallas Safari Club, one of the world's leading hunting and conservation organizations. As a member, you'll receive Game Trails magazine, a monthly newsletter, and invitations to our monthly meetings and special activities. Join Dallas Safari Club, an international organization based in Dallas, supporting hunting and conservation worldwide. For more information, call 800-9-GO-HUNT or visit our website at www.biggame.org. BioBore EB is the premier gasoline additive that combats the negative effects ethanol has on an engine. Its comprehensive formula is designed to protect marine engines and marine environments, yet also works great in all two- and four-stroke engines. It prevents phase separation and ethanol-related engine problems while stabilizing fuel for 18 months. BioBore's detergents also clean the entire fuel system of carbon and varnishes. BioBore EB has the best treat rate in the industry. One ounce treats an amazing 15 gallons of gas. Available at your local sporting goods store or visit BioBore.com today. Howdy folks, I'm Lee Hoffbear for Hoffbear's Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas. We hope you love listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show, because we do, and we're proud to be a title sponsor. Now listen up, we here at Hoffbear Outdoor Superstore have got some great deals for you folks that love the great outdoors. Whether you're needing a brand new Polaris ATV, or maybe a Polaris Ranger to ride around check your deer feeders, get to and from the deer blind, maybe to get you down to the dove patch, whatever your needs are, we can fix you up with a brand new Polaris today. Now we're also a New Holland tractor and equipment dealer. Now I'm just speculating, but maybe you need a new tractor and shredder to shred around your deer blinds, maybe clean up around deer camp, or maybe even shred a few lanes in those sunflower pack. Now, we've got lots more than just Polaris and New Holland, so come check us out today. Hoffbauer's Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas. You can check us out on the web at hpolaris.com. Better yet, just come see us. Highway 84 West in Gulfway, Texas, and in Central Texas for over 48 years now. And folks, we couldn't have stuck around this long. We were steering you wrong. Listen close and you can hear That light jukebox playing in my ear Ain't a woman gonna change the way I think I think I'd just stay here and drink There's a little Merle Haggard for you on a Lone Star weekend. I'm Cable Smith. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Lone Star Outdoor Show brought to you by Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris. Uh, we're about to get into some coastal fly fishing talk here, but first, this segment is proudly brought to you by Costa Del Mar Sunglasses, See What's Out There, and Dallas Safari Club, the leader 
and Big Game Conservation. Visit www.biggame.org to find out more about this great organization today. Uh, Well, moving right along here, there are few things that I've experienced in the great outdoors that are as thrilling and oftentimes as rewarding as hooking into a beautiful fish with a fly rod. There is really just nothing that compares to it. Uh, at times, fly fishing can be completely frustrating, uh, but it's that you know it's that one fish that makes you keep coming back again and again. And I'm no fly fishing snob. Let me tell you, I'll go down to the Texas coast with uh, a bait box and fill it up with live croaker and uh, and be just as happy as I was fly fishing. But uh, if you haven't tried fly fishing with uh, how affordable and how accessible fly fishing gear is today, I I strongly encourage every angler out there to at least give it a try. You know, if it's not for you, so be it, but uh, give it a whirl. It can be too much fun, really, to be honest. And uh, here to talk some coastal fly fishing with us, specifically redfish, is Costa Del Mar Pro Captain Scott Summerlot, who's been guiding on the Texas coast for, oh gosh, a couple decades now. And by the way, at the end of our visit today, we're going to give away a promo card that's going to let one lucky listener customize their own pair of Costa Del Mar sunglasses any way they want to. Uh, So you'll want to stay tuned for that. And at the very least, even if you aren't really interested in fly fishing, uh, Captain Summerlot is going to tell you where to find those early summer schools of redfish and so, without further ado, it's my pleasure to welcome longtime guide Scott Summerlot to the show. Thank you. I appreciate it. You bet. It is great to have you. And uh, before we talk a little fishing, let's get to know you as far as, uh, man, you've been down on the Texas coast for a couple decades now uh, guiding uh, both hunting and fishing trips. Um, I started off guiding waterfowl hunters when I was in, uh, when I was 18, 19, and uh, it just, translated into becoming a full-time guide a little later in life. Right. And so what part of the coast do you do most of your guiding? Um, These days I split the year. I do about six months of the year in Texas and about six months of the year in Florida. Uh Um, In Texas, I fish pretty much from Freeport all the way to South Padre Island, and occasionally I'll go up around Beaumont. It just uh, depends. I tend to follow the fish the best I can. Sometimes I have people that, you know, I just have to fish here. This is where I'm going to be, and so that's where I fish them, uh-huh. uh, which is usually Port O'Connor or Sea Drift. But uh, my, a lot of my customers are becoming more adventurous, and it's easier to get them to go, you know, leave that comfort zone. So every now and then we'll end up at South Padre or Port Mansfield or, you know, wherever. All right. Uh, well, Scott, you know, it's early summer right now, which means uh, that you're going to be specializing in sight casting to redfish on the fly or uh, with light tackle. So take us through what you're looking for when trying to locate an area uh, that should be holding a good number of redfish. Well, the things to keep in mind is, one, once you hit the summer months, you, you you have to start thinking about water temperature and the amount of oxygen in the water. Of course, bait is always important. If there's no bait, there's no fish as a rule. Mm -hmm. Um, Not always is the bait noticeable. Redfish, as a rule, feed on shrimp and crab. So if you go in an area and people are like, oh, there's no bait here. Well, they're looking for mullet. 
you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't shrimp or crabs. With that being said, um, as a rule, I tend to start off the mornings shallow because the water's cooler, even though it has less dissolved oxygen because there's been no photosynthesis all night. But the water's cooler. The fish can tolerate it better. That's where the bait wants to be. And then as the day progresses and it gets hotter and hotter, we move to deeper flats um, with more sand because uh, water over sand typically is not as warm as water over mud. Uh-huh. That's, that's you know, the general formula almost anywhere you go. Uh-huh. Well, let me ask you about a couple other things that I look for when I go to the coast, uh, and, and it pertains more to trout, you know, schools of trout that are feeding. Um, oftentimes you see a big slick of, of oil that's been put off by those fish, and uh, I'm just wondering if redfish do that to the same degree as trout, and if, if that's something that you're also looking for. If you're a fly fisherman, all of those things are, are keys to locating trout, not necessarily redfish. They can produce slicks, but they're much, much, much more subtle than, um, you know, a school of trout. Um, and surprisingly, you know, we think about these schools of trout making these slicks actually individual fish. Hmm. Now, does that mean you couldn't have a couple of, uh, you know, several fish in a school regurgitate and create a bigger slick? Yes, but... You know, as a rule, it's one fish. I mean, we've many times we've located one large trout just by watching a slick mm-hmm. or seeing a slick pop up. And you come out and you're in two foot of water. Obviously, if you move up to that slick and there's a bunch of trout there, you're going to know it. Well, usually there's not a bunch of trout there. There's that one fish. Okay. You know, but as, as a rule, in regards to redfish making slick, they do. It's just much more subtle, and I would say it was, it's a tool to use in deeper water. Most fly fishermen, of course, don't like fishing deeper water because it takes the sight casting element out of it. Right. But, you know, in my opinion, they miss out on a lot of great opportunities. And what about using birds as an indicator uh, to help locate a school of fish? They, they can be, but that's more common. Down in the Laguna Madre in uh-huh. the afternoons, uh, single birds will get over little pods of redfish and uh, feed on the shrimp that they're kicking up. But you don't see that as much on the middle or upper coast as you do way south. Okay. That's not to say it doesn't happen. It's just not. It's the exception rather than the rule where down, you know, on the lower coast, uh, May, June, you'll be looking for those birds for the, to find the redfish. The most important part of finding these fish is just the the years of experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't I I can't take that away because and, and I'm I'm gonna say that that's the most important thing because you know there's a lot of places that I've thought had fish, should have fish over the years that didn't have fish, you know, and there's been a lot of places that I never thought I'd be sight casting the redfish, but lo and behold, I've been sight casting a redfish. Right. So with that being said. The, the, the important part is, as I said, if you're looking for redfish and you're talking summer like what you are, mm-hmm. you start shallow over grass, and then as the day progresses, move to areas with uh, broken bottom, you know, with sand holes and grass. I'm not talking like four or five or six foot. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm talking, you move from that 
foot of water out to two foot of water as the water as the temperatures warm. Um, I'm a fan of summertime fishing, finding the cooler water temperature, which usually means fishing sand, not mud. And then, uh, you know, like I said, starting shallow in the morning as the day, as the water warms, moving a little deeper. Mm -hmm. The other thing is fishing closer to the passes where the water exchange with the Gulf. The water temperature where there's a lot of tidal current will also be a little cooler, and that that helps in locating fish. Well, great insight there. Um, as far as fly fishing goes, though, let's talk gear here for a second. And you know, uh, I think that universally most folks would say that an eight weight would be the ideal rod for fly fishing the Texas coast. I've got a a nice eight weight rod and reel combo from Temple Fork Outfitters. Um, is that what you would recommend for someone looking to get into uh, inshore fly fishing? If you're only looking for one rod to fish inshore uh, in Texas, really the eight weight is it. Um, that's the perfect setup as far as, you know, you can throw bigger flies when it's windy. You can handle the wind, providing you, you have a, a proper cast, a, a good cast. You can handle almost any wind with an eight weight in the summertime when the water's hot you know i'm a big catch and release guy most of the people who fish with me are catch and release anglers if you're fishing with a real light rod and you're not good at fighting fish or don't know how to fight them properly and you're one of these people that takes five minutes to land a little old redfish having an eight weight is better because you can fight the fish harder if you have like a six or seven weight and you fight these fish for five, six, seven, eight minutes. Um, when the oxygen's low and the water's hot, the uh, you'll kill these fish. Mm, I've okay. seen it happen many times. Um, mm -hmm. You have to, when you hook a, a fish, and, and it doesn't matter what kind of fish, whether you're talking a tarpon in Florida, a redfish in Texas, a big bull red in Louisiana, you know, you want to fight them hard and to the limit of your tackle and it's for the fish's benefit um and I, I can't put it any other way i'm a big believer in you whip a fish quick get them released or take a couple of pictures get them released that makes perfect sense if you're in it to go out and uh catch a redfish or two for a meal and you want to make it a little more sporting i might say hey go out there with a five or a six weight and enjoy it i know a couple of people who do that, you know, they decide, hey, I'm ready to I'm ready to have a fresh fish dinner and they'll whip out the five weight and go catch a couple of redfish on it. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, otherwise, if they're going to be releasing fish, they use heavier equipment so that they can uh, fight them quickly and release them quickly. Um, but an eight weight is a perfect setup, really. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, well, let's take a quick break here. Uh, but now that we know where to find the fish, what rod we should be using, uh, let's get into different flies and their presentation. Uh, of course, we've also got to give away a pair of Costa Del Mar sunglasses. That's all coming up in the next segment as we continue our visit with Captain Scott Summerlot. You're listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show.
Ben Lofton Fencing is Texas' premier fencing company. They apply a design-it-right, build-it-right-the-first-time mindset to all projects. And with 15-plus years' experience, there's no job they won't tackle. Ben Lofton Fencing specializes in deer and exotic game fences, breeder and handling facilities, water gaps, as well as farm and ranch fences, and corrals and working pens. Better Business Bureau certified, they offer the quality and personal service you expect. So for your next fencing project, go Texan and call Mr. Lofton himself at 254-709-1320 or visit BenLoftonFencing.com. Do you have a hog problem at your ranch or deer lease? We have the solution. The System Hog Trap comes in two sizes, 17-foot and 30-foot diameter traps. After you trap the hogs, take the top section off the trap and use it for another feeder site to keep the hogs away from the feeder. The system is both a trap and a deer food plot fence. That way you don't waste your money on just a hog trap. Call 940-391-3669 or visit www.goinfencing.com. That's goinfencing.com. Hey, North Texas sports fans, this is Brian Spagnola, General Manager of Texas Motor Cars in Addison. My family's been in the car business for over 50 years, and I want to show you the difference in buying from a family-owned and operated business. TexasMotorCars.com is an awesome website that lets you do virtually all of your shopping online. We have a professional photographer that takes amazing photos, and we give you all the information that you'll need up front. You can even find out how much we will give you for your trade-in before you ever come in. I take pride in the fact you can come in, choose a car, and be out in less than an hour. We have financing rates starting at 1.79% on pre-owned vehicles and can help almost anybody. Please do yourself a favor. If you're in the market for a pre-owned vehicle of any kind, give us a shot. Let me show you how easy buying a vehicle should be. Visit TexasMotorCars.com or come visit our 20,000-square-foot indoor showroom in Addison. Again, visit TexasMotorCars.com or call us at 1-888-9-TX-MOTORS. Rockwall Marine is North Texas' premier boat dealership, offering the finest lineup of fishing boats anywhere. Mercury, Yamaha, Evinrude, Bass Cat, Alumacraft, and War Eagle, also specializing in all aspects of rigging, from power poles and electronics to motors and trolling motors. So whether you're looking for a new or used boat, parts or service, Rockwall Marine is your one-stop boating center and the nation's number one Bass Cat dealer in 2013. Call Tommy Yetz at 972-771-4442 or visit rockwallmarine.com. My name is Robbie Byers. I'm the executive director of CCA Texas, and I'm listening to the Lone Star Outdoors radio show. Well, the water, it reflected all the darkness in the sky. As we crossed that western bay. But the helmsman, he misjudged it, and we ran aground. At the edge of the intercoastal waterway. Smuggler's Prayer, that's one of my favorites from Daryl Lee Rush bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoors Show presented by Hoff Power Polaris and Lone Star Beer. I'm your host, Cable Smith. Thank you so much for being here with me on this lovely Texas morning. Uh, we are talking fly fishing, specifically for redfish along the Texas coast here today. Uh, but before we pick it back up with Captain Scott Summerlot, this segment is proudly brought to you by Lone Star Beer. The best way to cool down after a long, hot, but successful day on the water is by cracking open an ice-cold Lone Star Light. Remember to drink responsibly Lone Star Beer, the national beer of Texas. Uh, well, let's go ahead and jump back into it here as we've still got long time Texas Coastal Fishing Guide, Captain Scott Summerlot on the line. And uh, we're, we're specifically talking fly fishing for 
uh, early summer reds today. And since in the previous segment we found out where to locate them, let's get into how to catch them right now. Knowing that redfish primarily feed on shrimp and crabs, uh, Captain Scott, are those the fly patterns that you're going to be throwing most of the time? There's really only three patterns that I really, when I leave the dock, I feel like I have to have in my box if I'm going red fishing. I'm a little different if I'm going to be trout fishing. Uh-huh. Um, but if I'm going to be after redfish, and, you know, with redfish come black drum, potentially sheep's head, potentially flounder, potentially uh, trout. But if I was just primarily going after redfish, I have a little spoon fly that I make. There's several different versions of spoon flies out there uh, that can be used. My friend Tom Horby down in uh, Fort O'Connor, he makes a cool little um, spoon fly. Mine is very thin profiled, easy to cast uh, on lighter tippet or lighter or lighter rod. Um, it doesn't spin up a lot. It kind of or it doesn't twist. It'll ride up on its side, the flash, fall, hook up, ride up on its side. So there's one. The other one is um, a Borsky bonefish slider for a uh, – I do several versions of his pattern. The one I'm currently like is uh, it's a deer head or it's a piece of rabbit tail designed to ride hook up. Rabbit tail with either bead chain or lead eyes, depending on how I want it. Uh-huh. Then it's got uh, a little Enrico Puglisi dubbing brush wound around it, up to the eyes, and then a clump of deer, a clump of deer hair stacked on there, and uh, trimmed to be. It looks like a shrimp, a mud minnow, a mullet. It these look like any one of a number of different foods that the redfish will feed on. And then my other pattern is what uh we call a shrimp slider which it's hard to describe the fly but it's a hooked up fly that um digs and zags in the water when you're stripping it in mm-hmm. those also apply to black drum mm-hmm. and, and real quickly uh what about if you were targeting trout specifically uh as far as trout go it's really hard to beat a all-white seducer tied to be four to six inches long mm-hmm. and also a white deceiver with an olive back. So obviously designs that are supposed to imitate bait fish. They are. The seducer pushes a lot of water because of the way it's uh, palmered collar is and uh, it pushes a lot of water. Um, I can tell you this: if you want to, ca- if you ever want to catch, truly catch a gigantic trout, trout on fly, the key is to make long casts and be willing to blind cast. Hmm. You know, a lot of people, oh, I want to go sight cast these big trout. It can be done, but you better have really good eyes, and you better have a really long cast because sight casting to a big trout is about one of the most difficult things I have found to do in Texas. Okay. Uh, well, Captain Scott, these flies that uh, you've mentioned for redfish and trout, um, they're all submersible flies. Is there a good fly that will entice redfish to uh, to strike on the surface? Fish occasionally with what they call a gurgler, which is a little foam topwater fly. 
I have my own version that I tie up and uh we'll do that when the water's really, really shallow early in the morning, uh in the summertime. Mm-hmm. Early, early in the morning. But all in and all done, I'm not a big fan of fishing the top water flies for redfish with customers because most of them get so excited when they see the fish come up to eat it, they yank it away from them, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's just kind of one of those deals where, in my opinion, for inexperienced anglers, which, you know, most of the people who come and pay me money to fish are, they're novice to intermediate anglers. Very few of them are, are truly, you know, skilled. And, it's a low percentage hookup for them because, again, they see that fish coming and his head and mouth lifting out of the water to eat that surface popper, and they're like, oh, my gosh, and they trout set them and yank that fly out away, out away from them. Right, right. And, you know. It's, it's the like, same thing. Guess, it took me a, a long time just with largemouth bass and using frog poppers to, you know, you really got to let them take it, you know, all the way under the surface for a good second before, you you know, you, rip, you rear back and set the hook on them. Yeah. Well, uh, it's like uh, it's like my buddy uh, Al Keller, who guides over here in Florida with me, and he also guides in Louisiana. That's where he's living now. He, he, he'll say, "Just barely got that one away from him," <laughs> you know. So it's uh, it's it's important that people are excited. We wouldn't do it if we didn't get excited, and it's important to keep that excitement. However, at the same time, I would say it's important to learn to control the excitement. And the only way to get to that point is to have caught a lot of fish. And the only way to catch a lot of fish is to go fishing a lot. And miss a lot. And miss a lot, yeah. (laughs) That's kind of the natural progression of an angler. You know, the only way to catch a lot is to miss a lot originally. Now, going back to um, the presentation of these flies, when you find a redfish that you're sight casting to, uh, do you throw the fly over the fish's back, bring it back to it? Are you trying to put it right on the fish's nose? I mean, uh, talk about where the ideal cast would land in relation to the fish. I tell everybody put it right on them until the fish tells you to do it different. Mm-hmm. Meaning you put that fly as close to their head as possible with the cast, and if that spooks the first one, then move that cast a little further away from them. Uh-huh. And in my opinion, redfish do not want to see a fly sitting still, period. Uh, most of the time, if a, fly, if a fish comes up on a fly that's sitting motionless and all of a sudden it moves, I would say eight out of ten times that's going to send that, that fish packing. Mm-hmm. He's going to hit the afterburners and it's over. And, uh, you know, there you have it. Well, uh, and also, um, I, I guess there's one other um, one other piece of the puzzle is how far you lead a fish and how far you cast beyond a fish also has to be, uh, the weight of your fly has to be considered. Right. I believe in throwing a fly that is going to get to the bottom in about two seconds in a foot of water. To me, as a rule, that's about the perfect sink rate. However, there's times when if you're in fishing these fish in two foot of water, you need a fly that 
that it's going to take a half second to get to the bottom. Oh, yeah. You've got to get down there in front of them quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, one more thing here uh, real quick before I let you go. Uh, I know why I love fly fishing, uh, but what would your sales pitch be uh, to someone out there who maybe has never fly fished before? Why should they take up this great sport? I could give you several answers. For me, the reason I got into it is because of the challenge of it. Um, you know, especially sight casting, it becomes a... Uh, it becomes a one-on-one stalk with the fish. You know, you have to get up there. Everything has to be perfect. You've got to make that, you know, that perfect cast. There's nothing simple about it. Um, you have to be much closer to a fish to catch them on a fly rod than you do with a fish. You know, you might be throwing a spinning rod with a quarter-ounce jig or a level line with a big old topwater, and you're chunking that sucker out there, you know, 250 foot. Right. The, yeah. the the best fly anglers, your best anglers are going to be able to fish that 60 to 80 foot range real well. And uh, you're just not going to go out there and do that overnight. So if you're up for the challenge, there's there's your one answer. Well, hey, Captain Summerlot, uh, great stuff today. Really enjoyed the conversation. Um, real quick, before I let you go, though, we've still got a pair of Costa Del Mar shades to give away. To one lucky listener, they can customize them any way they want to. Uh, and I'm going to put you on the spot, though, and help us come up with a trivia question, a fishing-related trivia question uh, for this morning's giveaway. How about this one? What year did the redfish gain its game fish status in the state of Texas? Ooh, yeah, that's a good one. It might take a little research, but uh, that is a good question right there. What year did they... Grant the redfish game fish status. I think that's a good one. Oh, yeah, that's a great question. And, and we're going to do it a little different today. Uh, I'm going to ask that if you know the answer, you text it in to 214-289-7807. Text in what year Texas Parks and Wildlife granted the redfish its game fish status. Uh, text that in to 214-289-7807. I will put all of the right answers from throughout the weekend uh, since we have what, 28 broadcasts now throughout the state of Texas, I'll put all of them into a hat, and tomorrow afternoon I will draw the winner, and we'll put that on Facebook and get that promo card out to one lucky listener. So start texting in. Well, Captain, it's been a real treat visiting with you today. Uh, folks can check out your website at scottsummerlot.com, and Summerlot spelled S-O-M-M-E-R-L-A. T-T-E. Uh, and uh, y'all can check out his website right there if you're uh, interested in booking a trip with uh, Captain Scott. Thanks again for your time today, and we will do it again somewhere in the near future, I'm sure. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Talk to you soon. All right, sounds great. All right, there he goes, Costa Del Mar pro and longtime Texas coastal fishing guide, Captain Scott Summerlot. Let's knock out a quick break here. When we come back, we'll be joined by a longtime friend of the show. You've probably seen him on Sportsman's Channel, maybe read some of his articles or, or even his books. Uh, he's commonly referred to as the meat eater himself. The great Stephen Ranella drops by. We're talking optics and a whole lot more. You're listening to the Lone Star Outdoors Show. I feel like myself again for a little while.
like they did before On a good day I don't miss you anymore Did you know there's a bank that will pay you to be its customer? That's right. Lone Star Ag Credit is a cooperative and since it's owned by its stockholders pays millions in dividends each year. That's free money to every borrower. Lone Star Ag Credit serves people all over Northeast Texas, assuring you competitive interest rates on real estate loans, rural home loans, livestock and farm and ranch loans. Contact Lone Star Ag Credit today at 800-530-1252 or on the web at LoneStarAgCredit.com. Equal housing lender. Hey friends, Cable Smith here for DFW Safes. We all know that our guns are a big part of our lives, from grandfather's old 12-gauge to that trusty tack driver of a deer rifle. And DFW Safes is North Texas' premier safe dealer, specializing in rhino, bighorn, huntsman, heritage, and fortress safes, to name a few. They're family-owned and operated and have over 24 years' experience in the safe and installation business. They even have commercial safes for your business and scratch-and-dent safes for the most frugal of gun owners. Visit DFWSafes.com to set up your delivery today. That's DFWSafes.com or call 817-715-1068. At LSC Trailer Sales, we offer a full line of utility trailers from small single axle trailers to heavy equipment trailers, ATV trailers, car haulers, landscape trailers, cargo trailers, truck beds, and more. We can special order a custom trailer specific to your needs and have the ability to customize standard models in-house. LSC Trailer Sales is here to assist you with any questions you might have about trailers. Call 940-484-5500 or visit us at lsctrailersales.com. Finally, quality trailers at affordable prices in Dallas-Fort Worth. Hey, y'all, Cable Smith here for Tioga Retrievers. As bird hunters, we expect the most out of our gun dogs, and that's why I sent my sweet girl Belle to Angie and Tim Becker at Tioga Retrievers. Not only were her manners and obedience spot on in the blind and in the field, but Belle picked up over 200 birds in her first season. So whether you want a well-rounded hunting dog or just a well-mannered companion for the home, Tioga Retrievers has you covered. Located in Aubrey, Texas, visit TiogaRetrievers.com. That's T-I-O-G-A Retrievers.com. Coons Canyon Ranch in Rock Springs, Texas specializes in exotics such as Axis Deer and Black Buck. Coons Canyon offers quality animals at a price the working man can afford. Right now, save 10% on any package of multiple animals. Military personnel, police, and firefighters also get 10% off. Lodging is available upon request, as are other exotic species. Visit CoonsCanyonRanch.com for your next exotic trophy hunt. That's CoonsCanyonRanch.com. Hey, this is Chris Knight, and you're listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. You're looking for trouble, you won't this fight, and you run from yourself all through the night, face another day. Lonesome way, great stuff Lonesome there from the Lone Star Outdoor Show's own Chris Knight, bringing us back from break. Uh, I'm Cable Smith. Thank you so much for uh, for joining me this morning. Do appreciate it. Likewise, I appreciate our presenting sponsors, Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris. Uh, we're about to get into some serious big game talk here with our good friend, Stephen Ranella. Uh, but first, this segment, proudly brought to you by STI Guns. They're Texas-made and Texas-owned. Based out of Georgetown, they've got a full line of 1911 and 2011-style pistols in all calibers. Check them out at STIGuns.com, and do what I did. Go Texan. Go STI. Well, moving right along here. Uh, Let's go ahead and bring on our next guest today. 
He's pretty much a regular, uh, I'd have to say, at this point. But uh, nonetheless, it's always a treat to check in with Stephen Ranella, renowned outdoor writer and host of Meat Eater on Sportsman's Channel. Stephen, thanks for being here, man. Hey, thank you for having me on. I always like coming on the show. You betcha. I guess, uh, first of all, how in the world are you? Doing very good. Had kind of a, not a slow spring, did a few hunts this spring, but I, I've spent a lot of time right now thinking about fall, you know. Um, in fact, I, I, I spent most of my day today thinking about fall hunting trips and kind of, you know, on the phone with various friends of mine and, and just trying to figure stuff out, thinking a lot about August. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so what's in the works? Well, the main thing I don't know if I don't know if this happened last time we spoke. But I drew a muskox tag. Wow! Um, on Nunavak Island, on the Bering Sea, which I'm real excited about. But that, that's a February that's a February hunt. It's an extremely cold weather hunt. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, the other thing I'm excited about is my brother's uh, getting married this summer, and so he's having like when I got married, I had a week long bachelor party at uh, at a little fishing shack we own in Alaska. So I'm trying to, I'm working on putting together his bachelor party. He's doing back-to-back week long. So he's doing a two-week bachelor party with what we call his new friends, and then the other one's for his old friends, and I'm part of the old friends one. So I'm kind of playing that out. So it'll it'll be like a kind of a half-bachelor party, half-halibut fishing extravaganza. Well, you know, uh, last time we spoke, you were were just kind of getting through battling Lyme disease and you hadn't yeah. fully recovered, uh, so I just wanted to get an update as far as, you know, how are you back to 100%? Will you ever be 100% again? No, I'm told that there's nothing of it, of it left. Awesome. It, it, I, I started getting symptoms in, was 2014? I started getting symptoms in June 2013, early June, right after bluegill spawning season. And it cleared up by November, and nothing has happened to me since then. That's great news. Yeah, I'm so grateful, man. I was I was scared bad by that thing, you know. Yeah. But now I'm fine. Now I just use a lot more D, you know. <laughs> well, it's one of those things where you know it, it people kind of think, oh, that can never happen to me, and then it happens. Yeah, it's gonna it's gonna happen more and more and more. I think it's just like just you know, at least especially in the Northeast here and in some other areas. But you know, when I say here, I'm I'm talking from New York right now. Um, in the process of moving, but I'm in New York right now. And, and, uh, man, it's just like, it's everywhere here, you know, it's that time of year now, I guess, starting from turkey season on, I was picking ticks off myself hunting turkeys in Wisconsin this year, which is like a nice little reminder. Yeah. Yeah, man, it scares me. Not, it just seems like it's going to be something that gets, it's just going to be something that gets a lot worse. Unless they come out with some vaccine, they're always talking about different developments they're going to have on how they treat Lyme, but it's scary. Oh, well, we're certainly glad you're doing better and. You know, uh, we we had another great season of Meat Eater on Sportsman's Channel. Uh, I think y'all wrapped up second quarter, uh, maybe March or so. And uh, yeah, you know what's funny is that it's so hard. Like I don't, <laughs> like, I don't think of it in terms of seasons. I always think of it in terms of hunting seasons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we we have new shows coming up this summer, which I'm I'm excited about. We got a bunch of new ones. We've been filming. You know, we've been filming new stuff. Meat Eater airs Thursday night, seven o'clock our time, Central. Um, and, and this past season though, the highlight, I think, uh, for a lot of viewers was the, uh, the British Columbia moose hunt. And it got a little, a little hairy there for you, uh, when that, I guess that wounded moose came pretty close to stopping you. Yeah, he got me. He, he, he knocked me over with his antler, but it just, it felt like a, felt like if someone poking the backside with a, with a broomstick, 
you know, but w- what had happened was I had done something really stupid. You know, and, and everybody, you know, all your listeners who, who spent any amount of time out in the woods have done, you know, have done things and later been like, man, that was foolish, you know. But what I did is I took a, I took a brisket shot. So I took a head-on shot at a, at, at a, at a bull moose. And granted, man, it was a heavy, it was a big rifle, a big bullet, a good bullet. But I, I took a brisket shot at a moose and piled him right up. He goes right down. But then he, I see him get up, you know, and I was actually had to cross this beaver pond to get over where he was. And I get up and he's heading off through the timber. And I was already worried about what I'd done. You know, I mean, that's a deadly, deadly shot on most big game. But on moose, just they're just so big right. up in the front end bone and muscle and I see him go off I took another crack at him he goes down again and I had and I ran up there and what I'd done is after I shot him a second time I chambered a new round you know and then I, then I ran up there and got up to him and had really that chambered another round or forgot that I had and ejected the round so I had three rounds in a magazine and ejected my third round and, and went to oh, so you his ejected lantern, the live to, round yeah, yeah, yeah. So I went up to him. You know, I only realized that way later when we when I finally went back and got like this doesn't make much sense, but like when you're editing there's like raw footage and there's footage that, that you know, that the, the editors work from. I later I went back to the raw footage so I was still trying to figure out what went wrong and then realized what had happened, you know, fairly recently. So because we'd been waiting around in a beaver pond and stuff, and I, for some reason, I thought maybe I'd gotten this thing wet, like I've gotten a round wet. I usually seal, I usually get like primer seal and seal the end of my stuff to make it extra good in water. But um, anyhow, gun goes click. That bull stands up and just starts coming for me. And I start running, but he caught up with me and punched me right in the backside. And I scurried away from him, my buddy shot him. And I kept trying to feel back to where he had poked me or punched me with his antler come back and I had all this blood on my hand and I thought that it was my blood because I realized it was the moose blood because I hit him in the brisket you know and so when he ran me over it got on me and I realized that I was intact and, and in fact he hadn't even punched a hole in my waders but man that scared me and it wasn't even you know four or five days before that I got charged by a you know, false charge by a grizzly Yeah, with three oh, yeah. cubs she spun and went off the other direction so it was a pretty hairy trip <laughs> it, was, it was a good trip you know and, you, and when you go out it to film hunts so often you go out on the hunt and, and it maybe isn't one you're excited about and winds up being something amazing will happen you know or it's a hunt you aren't really thinking about too much but it winds up or i would say you go out for a hunt you're excited about the one not being that great right or you go out for a hunt that, that you think is gonna be the best thing in the world and and it's not that exciting and um but i'll tell you that 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 bc trip um with a friend of mine who, who guides up there for an outfitter i mean it was just I was excited going into it, and I was excited coming out of it. There, there were some great episodes, and it's like it's almost depressing because then you think, oh, "Man, how are we going to have better shows than that?" You know, <laughs> I'm sure we'll come up with a good way, but it's it's, uh, it's hard to feel like your best stuff somehow behind you. Yeah, those are some good shows, man. Yeah, really good shows. Oh yeah, well, it definitely made for uh, for good television. That is for sure. Yeah, some, sometimes you'll put together, you know, sometimes shows are good. Like I'll be happy with the show we make sometimes because of just the, the editing that went into it and that it's beautiful, right? Because it had a great sort of theme, you know, mm-hmm. um, or, or dealt with something that I care a lot about. I feel like we, we kind of like nailed something I wanted to get at, 
you know. Right. And sometimes the show is just good because just like exciting stuff happens, and they're each great. But but the ones where exciting stuff happens, it's just really easy and satisfying to produce those because you get done with it, you're like, man, people are gonna like this show, you know, and then they and then they do. And sometimes you can try to do a lot of sort of gymnastics and try to really like have some heartfelt thing or, you know, and if you get a sense of the, you know, that maybe falls out of face a little bit, it, it, it's hard to get over that, you know? So I love those trips when just like great moments come and you're like, man, this is going to be an awesome show. <laughs> well, I'm not sure how awesome it would have been if he'd uh, stomped a hole in your butt, but, uh, you know, I, I guess you just can't ever get complacent, no matter how much you hunt. No, I think that to a point, you know, like if I had gotten a real good stomp, and it would probably would have wound up being not such great, not such great. <laughs> I don't reckon so, man. Well, hey, uh, Stephen, let's knock out a quick break here. I still have a lot more I want to get into, and, and what I really want to discuss today is optics and their importance in Western big game hunting. So y'all don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more. From our good friend Stephen Ranella, you're listening to the Lone Star Outdoors Show. So I got my daddy's name stitched across my chest. And now I can drop a man from about two clicks. I wonder if he's proud of me yet. I've got my daddy's name stitched across my chest. Rockwall Gun Club is North Texas' premier shooting facility, offering both indoor and outdoor ranges, including a unique 500-yard rifle range. If shotgunning's your thing, then check out the 18-station clay course. Opening summer 2014, Rockwall Gun Club is offering special introductory, family, and corporate membership rates for founding members. Located at 15950 State Highway 205, you can also visit rockwallgunclub.com or call 972-215-6902. Rockwall Gun Club, the private shooting experience. At Frost, we could talk to you about our 24-7 online banking. Or we could talk to you about our more than 1,100 ATMs across Texas. We can even talk to you about our mobile banking app that lets you pay bills, transfer funds, and deposit checks from anywhere. But at the end of the day, there's nothing we enjoy more than to just talk to you. Thank you for calling Frost. How may I help you? We're here with the technology and convenience you want and the service you deserve. Frost. Banking. Investments. Insurance. If you're in the market for a firearm, you need to know about STI International. Based out of Georgetown, Texas, they're 100% employee-owned and offer the best warranty and customer service in the business. STI is renowned worldwide for exceptional fit and function. The patented 2011 high-capacity system proved so successful in shooting competitions that over 80% of competitors used STI guns or pistols built on STI frames at the USPSA National Championships. To see their full line of premier pistols, visit STIguns.com or check them out on Facebook at STI Firearms. STI, the continuing evolution of the 1911. Larson Electronics is a Texas-based lighting company that's been outfitting the United States military since the 1960s. And while they continue to support our troops, they also now have over 200 lights ideal for your hunting and fishing needs. Like the 35-watt HID camouflage Go Light Striker with remote that's 15 million candle power in the palm of your hand. Ideal for predator and hog hunting, they also have remote-controlled floodlights, feeder lights, and LED boat lights. Visit LarsonElectronics.com and go Texan with Larson Electronics for all your lighting needs. You wouldn't take a mule to the Kentucky Derby, and you wouldn't go swimming with your boots on. So why do folks wear mossy green camo to hunt the Great Southwest? Game Guard Camouflage is celebrating 10 years of putting hunters undercover 
in the rugged Texas terrain, owner Craig Smith invites you to visit a dealer near you to check out the full line of hunting apparel, caps, bags, coolers, gun cases, dove hunting belts, and the newly designed microfiber shirts, available in 13 different colors. So whether you're hunting, camping, fishing, or just enjoying the great outdoors, GameGuard has you covered. Visit GameGuard.net to find a dealer near you or call 888-381-4263. GameGuard, the official camo of the Lone Star Outdoors show. Hey everybody, this is Max Stalling and you're listening to my buddy Cable Smith on the Lone Star Outdoors show. I've got this friend, he's a lawyer in Dallas and his folks grow potatoes out Panhandle Way. He talks of bob wheels and playboys and turkey. Off come his wingtips and boots take their place. One of our favorites there from Max Stalling bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoors show. Presented by Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris. I'm your host, Cable Smith. Thank you for letting me ride shotgun with you on this beautiful Texas morning. Sincerely appreciate you spending a part of your weekend with me as we're about to continue our discussion with uh, our good friend Stephen Ranella, host of Meat Eater TV on Sportsman's Channel. And uh, we'll get into some uh, some optics discussion here and how important they are uh, when pursuing Western big game. Uh, but first, this segment of the program Proudly brought to you by Sendero Seed Company, Texas' premier seed company. They've got anything and everything you need to keep your whitetail herd happy and healthy, including the Dr. Deer-backed buck forage oats. Check them out at SenderoSeed.com or call Rob Hughes at 1-877-610-SEED today. Sendero Seed Company for all your planting needs. Uh, well, let's go ahead and uh, and jump back into it here with uh, with Stephen Ranella, who was nice enough to stick around through the break. And Stephen, what I really want to talk about now is just how important having a good pair of binos, a spotting scope, and uh, and obviously a rifle scope really is. Uh, I think sometimes, sadly, uh, it, it gets overlooked by a lot of hunters. You know, I remember one time when I first started doing western hunting, so or open country hunting. You know, I grew up hunting in Michigan and then. Binoculars are great in a place like Michigan, but I mean, let's just be honest. Like you, you don't, you're not spending as much time pounding the glass oh, when yeah. you're hunting, yeah. you know, brush country or farm country. Yeah, it's like Texas. I mean, you don't need a spotting scope to hunt whitetails here. Yeah, they, like they pair of binoculars, you can really kind of like judge an animal and make a good call. But like in Michigan, it's just not, and it also just not part of the culture so much. You know, like you have binoculars, but you just have spending a ton of time on them. When I first started hunting more open country, one of the first times I did was my brother moved to Alaska and we went up to hung up there and I remember I don't know what I just had some some low end just some cheap glass cheap spot and scope cheap binoculars and a buddy of mine had just gotten done doing a season of guiding out on the Alaska Peninsula and he had for tips he had gotten some fantastic optics and I remember there was a couple moments a grizzly came up the other side of the river from us and I remember just kind of looking at through my binoculars and then throwing up and looking as are his binoculars, and through mine, it was just like a brown amorphous blob, you know? <laughs> and I put up his glass, and I remember seeing how the wind was hitting, it was windy, and the wind was hitting this bear, and like, as that bear would move, the wind would kind of shift, you know, like a, what a cowlick is on your hair, someone has a cowlick. Oh, yeah. That wind would form these mini cowlicks all over this bear's long, kind of blonde 
fur. I remember just watching those things kind of play across his body in this, like, amazing detail. <laughs> and in that moment, dude, I was sold. And another thing that happened on that trip was there's a lot of uh, disturbance in the air when it gets warm during the daytime to the point where it might get, like, hunting caribou on the tundra. It might get 11 o'clock in the morning if you have a sunny day. It's a long period where you just, like, almost can't glass. You know, there's so much disturbance, so much waves coming up. But good optics really cut through that and still allow you to focus away and look in, and it's and it's it's not nearly as bad. And the other thing I found that I noticed on the same trip, kind of when I had this big optics revelation, was the sun at that time of year, days are still long, but the sun is kind of like is always on the horizon. It just comes up and just seems to like swirl across the whole horizon for a long, long, long time. And so much of what you're doing, you're always looking and there's a 50% chance that you're looking somewhere in the direction of this glare, you know, from the sun. And the way that those, the, the good glass would enable you to still be looking toward the sun and not get blown out. I now realize it's because of various coatings they put on the lenses. Um, that was a huge thing. I used to have binoculars that always get fogged up. Like you put them in a, you know, on river trips, you know, you're always putting yourself into a rubberized dry bag, get some moisture inside that rubberized dry bag. You put your knockers in there and then wind up getting fogged up. I don't mean fogged up on the outside, but I mean fogged up internally. Right. Because the seals weren't good in there. You know, they're not like, they're not purged. And I realized, man, that's another thing with good stuff. And I remember this guy one time saying, I mean, this is, this is like a, it's an exaggeration. But this guy was saying to me, saying to a friend of mine, actually, he's like, if I had $1,000 to spend on binoculars and a rifle, he goes, I'd spend 900 on the knocks and 100 bucks on the rifle. I mean, he was like trying to make a really, hardcore point but you see the i see the validity in what that guy's saying mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. i live i live by my binoculars and i've gotten to a point now i feel naked without my binoculars yeah so what i what i like to run right now is i like to use a 10 by 42 i use a vortex razor binocular i like eights as a rule of thumb this is a about digression but as a rule of thumb when i'm talking about office i'll generally tell people this is a generalization i generally say hunting in the east i like some eight eight power binoculars you know mm-hmm. hunting out west with longer you know just longer views i'll tend to grab a pair of tens tens is about as much as i can get away with free handing you know i'm stable enough like i've done enough and i'm stable enough where i can get a very stable picture holding just free handing a pair of tens even if i'm a little bit out of breath if i get up and do a pair of 12s it's very hard to stabilize them without putting them on a tripod or at least laying down resting your backpack down and resting your binoculars on there so i'm generally running like you know 10 by 42 binoculars which i can freehand but what i really love to do is just stick those things on a tripod mm-hmm. and it's like you wouldn't believe the difference i mean maybe you've done it but you would not believe the difference in the detail of stuff that you see once you mount it on a tripod i use, I use a tripod by outdoorsman's in arizona uh-huh. stuff you would never in a million years notice you notice once those things are on a tripod because you don't realize how much you're moving i mean like the flick of a bird's wing the flick of a ear it's like stuff comes alive like like you can't imagine doing that so that's now like how I like the glass. You know, when I sit down, man, I set up, when I get serious, I sit down and just start looking. And so do you prefer to use the, I mean, why do you prefer to use the binos over a spotting scope? Because, you know, we've seen you do both. Oh, I use both in conjunction. You know, I use both in conjunction. So I consider, if I consider like an optics package, right, like my optics package would be binos, spotting scope, and then my rifle scope. Right. Then if you put a range finder in a tube, let's just 
treat rangefinders as something different. Um, I use binos, sit down, and I start picking the place apart with binos. When I jump to a spotting scope, what I'm generally doing is I've flagged something. Let me back up and just say, like, let's say you get, on your, you get in your position, you're going to glass. You're on your glassing point, whatever. You're looking over a swamp. You're looking over, you know, a bunch of oak scrub. You're looking over tundra, whatever it is. You get down, and you got sort of the thing you want to see, right? Mm-hmm. The surroundings you want to look at. I'll do the first thing I'll do is I'll sit down, and I'll glass all the whole stuff just freehand, just very quickly. Make sure that I haven't come in and bunked something or I haven't come in and made something stand up and now he's sitting there staring at me from 200 yards away and I just haven't noticed him yet. So I sit down and like, boom, boom, boom. Glass everything freehand once through, just quick pass. Everything's cool, nothing's stirring, nothing's going on. Then I go to my tripod and I start tearing that place apart, right? And as I'm going through and, and I do a grid or I'll break the landscape up in a way that makes sense, like I'll say like, okay, I'll do that mountain, then I'll do that little valley, then I'll do that flat area. Yeah. And I'll grid those things out. So I do the mountain as a little a grid, like left to right, down, right to left, down, left to right, down. I think that's important because um, I, I feel like folks get overwhelmed and then just go in and start scatter shooting and, and really overlook a lot of It doesn't work. Yeah, it doesn't work. Well, we should talk more about that stuff in a minute. So right, I, I wanted to answer your question about the spot scope. So as I'm going through all my stuff, like when I break up my I break up my landscape into, into a half dozen chunks or two chunks, whatever makes sense, and I grid them out and I really start studying them, I'll start flagging things that I need to come back, that I know I need to come back and look at. Like maybe a really kind of like enticing little shady spot, you know, under some trees where I can just picture something laying up and just getting out of the sun. I'll flag all these things in my mind, knowing that I'm going to finish up my initial pass with my knocks, and I'm going to put my spot and scope on, and I'm going to go revisit all those little spots. The other thing I'm going to use with my spot and scope, once I, if I have it out, once I, on my tripod is I might have a couple things that are just too far to really do the initial scan with the binoculars. You know, they're out of range for binoculars. And then I'll go and, and, and give those a check with my spotting scope as well. If I'm going through and I pick up something that I'm very interested in, I won't just flag it for later. I'll jump right to my spot scope. Mm-hmm. But the other main thing I find myself using my spotting scope for, like the, the main reason I like to have it with me, is once I find an animal, I usually always stare at that thing with my spot and scope as much as I can before I start planning a stalk. I'm talking about spot and stalk hunting here. Like before I start planning a stalk, I want to look at it because sure. not only is it good for elements of legality, you know, let's say you're hunting boost in an area, it's got to have three brow times or four brow times. You know, you need to stare at that thing. If you're out filling a doe tag, does that thing have a couple spikes that I better know about? You know, I mean, if it's got three inch spikes coming out the top of its head, that's big trouble is I don't want to stalk it. I definitely don't want to shoot it. Right. I'm hunting a doe tag with bears, you know, is that animal a mature animal? Does it have cubs? Does it look like a full grown bear? So you're not walking up there and you've shot a 70 pound bear. You want to make sure you're looking at a real animal, you know? So that's really what I like that spotting scope for. Uh-huh. Investigating mysterious little places. I think I see a glint. I want to look at it close, but really I love it for just looking at animals. And I look at non-game animals too all the time on my spot and scope. I, it's just like, it's something kind of, there's like this voyeuristic thrill that sort of comes from seeing something way off that's oblivious to your presence. And then you suck that thing in with a spot and scope and you just get to watch it doing its thing and it's doing its thing completely outside of, it, of any awareness of you. You know, I love those moments. Yeah, indeed, my friend. And, and actually, Steve, uh, Real quick, thanks to you, uh, you've been using Vortex for years now, 
And uh, we recently, uh, because I've seen you, you know, using this brand, we recently got hooked up with them and now have uh, their full line of optics at our disposal. And uh, I went on a, uh, a free-ranging Audad hunt in the Texas Hill Country recently, put those Vortex binos on the tripod for the first time. Oh, my gosh, the picture that I was seeing was absolutely incredible. You're just simply not going to get, and I've had a ton, I've had a ton of kind of binoculars, and I've been using Vortex stuff for a long time. And I was using Vortex stuff long before I got involved in doing media to the show. You know, I'm telling you, it's just like you are not going to get a better, you're not going to get a better thing for the money. You're just not, yeah. you know. Oh yeah. And then they're not when you have a problem, they just don't mess with you. You call up there or send your stuff in, they're going to take care of you. And that's a huge thing when you're spending that. And when you're spending serious money to get good stuff, you know, it's like for most guys, myself included, when, when I first started out this kind of hunting, if I'd lost my binoculars, it'd be like the same feeling you get now if you totally your car. I'd be like, oh man, how am I going to replace those things? Or if I mess them up, like, how am I going to replace them? It's a serious investment. Oh, yeah. And it's nice when you buy something, you, you want to know. That it's not just that you can go back to the store you bought it from, but you really want to know you can go back to the manufacturer and be, I have a problem, and know that your problem is going to be resolved. Mm-hmm. Because it's a heavy hit. It's like most guys are not in a situation to be going out and spending five, six, hundred, a thousand dollars on binoculars every year. You know, you've got to be getting a bunch of seasons out of them. Yeah. You know, unless you got a financial situation that, that that's different, but I mean, that's just like most guys I know to hunt. That's where they're at, man. I mean, it's just like not something they can be plowing down huge chunks of change all the time. So yeah. it's, just, it's really like the kind of thing you got to you want to buy it once and buy it right. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Steve, let's go back to how you break down an area that you want to glass, um, and you know, obviously using uh, like a grid type of methodology is effective, but you know, I think folks myself included, sometimes get overwhelmed. I, I know I've looked at a ridge and thought, man, I think I've looked at, you know, glassed that ridge two times already. And and then you're just scatter shooting and, and wasting your time. And, and it's a skill because I've been with guys who are great at glassing, you know. Um, the year I mentioned using like an outdoorsman's tripod, you know, I hunted with some of those boys from outdoorsmen and those guys will blow you away out because they are a spot in game. Um, so there's guys that are good at it and there's guys that are miserable at it. You know, there's guys that don't spot any game. And a commonality of the guys that do spot game is they don't succumb to the temptation and just keep looking at these spots that look good. It, it doesn't matter the situation. You sit down and your head's going to come up with like what spot you expect to see an animal. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just natural that you, you like the looks of something, you know, and you find yourself studying it too often, studying it too often and not giving the rest of the ground its fair share of, of looks. So what I'll do when I sit down is I will do like I was saying earlier, I try to grid it out in a way that makes sense. And sometimes that will be that I'll pick like an elevation band, you know, and, and I'll work in the elevation band back and forth. And sometimes I think more, I think of those as more like horizontal lines where I'm moving back and forth across elevation bands. And sometimes I'll think of it like vertical lines where I'm moving sort of up and down. And what I do is I just break it up in any way that makes sense. It doesn't matter how you break the landscape up. You could break it up being like if you imagine yourself at the center of a clock, you could just break it up by saying, okay, I'm going to glass from 10 to 11. Then I'm going to glass from 11 o'clock to 12 o'clock and 12 o'clock to 1 o'clock. Whatever it is you're going to do, 
break up all visible ground into something where you can categorize all the chunks of ground around you. Mm-hmm. And then working closer to farther or farther to closer, make sure you pick over every patch of ground. A really important thing about glassing is when you do find an animal, let's say you sit down in your glass, you find a doe, you find a doe and a couple of fawns or something. You glass, let's see, your glass for a meal deer, you find, oh, there's a doe. A good glasser is going to start to sort of see, like, where are they? What do they look like exactly? Like, what is their color right now? How do they look in this quality of light? What do they look like in this landscape? And instead of thinking of them just as deer, kind of think of them as like a color, a shading, and, and pay attention to that and sort of lock that in your head. And the other thing is, where are they? You know, are they associated with a certain, are they in the shade? If they're in the shade, are they on the north side in the shade? And then take that little bit of information and say like, okay, they like that spot right there. Where are there other spots that are like that? Mm-hmm. Or could I move and put myself in the position to see more spots like that? Like if I'm in a spot where I'm just getting one little glimpse of a north face and slope, and I sit there all evening, and the only things I ever see are on that north face and slope, the next time I go out to sit in glass, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get where I'm looking at a lot more north facing slope. Right. You know, uh-huh. because I've identified that as my spot. And the other thing is, and this is something you hear everything you ever read about glass and, or anything you ever read about still hunting always makes the same point, but it's so true. You can't say it enough is get over the idea that you're actually looking for the animals. You're really so often you're just looking for parts of animals. And of course you're not thinking, well, I'm going to go now in glass and look for an antler time. And then I'm going to do a pass looking for an ear. It's just, you have to look at it and just stay engaged and really be mentally processing what you're seeing. Because so often it's just a a line that catches your eye or it's something that just seems a little bit off or it's like a dark shading behind some brush that winds up being the thing you're looking at. And then you put it together and get that spot and scope out and you realize, wow, that is an animal, you know? And it's really fun when you start spotting animals that you can't believe you saw, you know? Yeah. That's what's exciting to me is I like to be not surprised by buddies with being like, oh man, I spotted this animal and you didn't see him. I don't care about that. I care about being like in a situation where I'm like, man, I can't believe I saw that thing because that feels pretty good. And it's funny because you like, my brother spends a lot of time hunting moose in the Alpine in Alaska. Okay. They hunt above the timberline for moose. That dude can find moose in willow better than anybody I know because he's done a ton of it. And that kid is not out looking for moose. That kid's out looking for antler palms sticking up out of willow thickets. Right. You know, yeah. there's a color to it or something that he's just like, boom, there he is. <laughs> like where? Like, I'm telling you, that thing is over there. He'd be like, see that bush? Go off in that bush a little bit. Go to the right. You see that little thing? That's an antler tine. You're like, no way. And then sure enough, come evening, it stands up and there he is, you know, because <laughs> yeah. yeah. he just knows what he's looking for. Well, I think you, you said something kind of profound there. You, you have to be mentally engaged in, in it. I mean, really, concentration, uh, the amount that it takes when you're behind the glass is, is it's paramount. Um, no, there is. There is it's, I can't think of a better word for it. It's thinking. You're sitting there thinking about what you're looking at. And those, you know, if I'm, I spend a lot of time, I get to home with new people all the time, you know? And the minute you sit down, let's say you sit down in some great glass and spot, let's say you're just glassing for pigs, you know, glass for wild pigs. And just early morning, you expect, like, they'll be scurrying back to wherever they're going to bed down. And I'll sit down, so maybe I haven't hunted before. And, and the minute they set up, 
I'll be like, this dude's going to find game. I'll be like, this guy's not going to find game. <laughs> and it's just something about the person's, like, demeanor, you know? If I see someone kind of get in there and he sort of scratches out a little spot and folds up his jacket and gets his jacket just how he likes it, sets his tripod up, kind of shuffles around, gets where, you know, I'm like, this dude's going to find game. Yeah. Because he's getting ready to make this, like, the thing he's doing, you know? Right. Like, that dude's going to tear this place apart. And someone who just kind of, like, scans around a little bit and, you know, looks up at the sky and they does a fast scan, like, there's no way you're going to find an animal, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, unless he's just running out across the field, but you would have saw him anyways. You know, it's just hard to pick those ones apart. The other hard thing about glass, especially, you know, you know, like most game animals, a lot of the game animals you chase after, what we call like crepuscular. So you have nocturnal, you know, active at night, diurnal, active during the day. But so many game animals are crepuscular, like active during waning, waning and waxing light. So dawn and dusk, mm-hmm. period. And you'd be set up for glass. And, and even though we're talking about this grid pattern, there's sort of a way that a, a really great glasser is able to be working his grip pattern over and over and over again. He's done it 20 times. He's going to do it 30 times. But at the same time, he's always lifting up from his grid pattern, pulling his eyes away from his binoculars, and doing a scan, particularly in the evening and morning when animals start moving. Because if, if you have a little grid pattern set up and it takes you four or five minutes to go through your grid pattern, a lot can happen off of your pattern during those four or five minutes, like the one thing you're looking for, he might cross some opening and you were, you know, off in La La Land studying some little shady spot under a bush and not notice him. So it's also having this sort of total awareness of your area, but still able to perform that one function of really picking the landscape apart while still periodically lifting your eyes up and doing just the old check, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. Because everybody knows the feeling of sitting there and you're trying to find stuff a mile away. Then all of a sudden you, you know, you, look up to rest your eyes and realize there's a buck staring at you from 50 yards away, you know? Oh yeah. Too often that, that which is its own kind of, which is its own kind of failure to have that, to let that, <laughs> to let that happen to you. Yeah. Total awareness and total concentration. Yeah. Oh yeah. Paramount. Um, well, you've been gracious with your time. I did want to ask you uh, one more thing here uh, because I think a lot of folks underutilize their scopes, you know, rifle scopes capabilities these days. I mean, you can really get out there if you've put the time in, with your scope, it's kind of like our human brain. We don't really use much of, you know, our brain power at all, really. And I think, uh, I think a lot of folks underutilize their scopes as well. Oh yeah, you know, I used to, I was always guilty of that, and and it's funny, you know, I'm not, I'm not the shooter I want to be. No, you know, I agree that we, I, I agree that most people don't use their scope and their maximum potential, particularly because. There's so many great quality scopes out there that have higher capabilities than the shooter. You know, I think at a time, the, the equipment was was probably the limit, you know. Um, like marksmanship or marksmen were, were in some way limited by the, the capabilities of their equipment. Right now, equipment's so good, and, 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 and rifles are so great, and scopes are so great. I know for a fact I don't shoot, like I, as a person, right, my human error or Considering my human error, I don't shoot as good as my equipment is capable of shooting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, another guy out there, whoever he is and wherever he is, there's plenty of them, could pick my stuff up and do a better job with it than I do. And so I'm always chasing that. You know, I'm always chasing that technology. And, and, and my personal hunting setup, you know, like what I shoot is adequate for a much longer range type of shooting than I'm particularly comfortable 
mm-hmm. using in real world hunting situations. But what I like to say to people is I like taking thousand yard technology. Okay. So the ballistics, the thinking, the optics, right. They go into thousand yard shooting and bring it back to a, a, a shooting that I'm more comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Take that thousand yard technology and thousand yard know-how and apply it down to, to 400 yard shooting. When I was a kid, if you shot something at 300 yards, it was like this unfathomable distance. Right. You know, you just held up way over its back and come on, you know, and, and who knew what was going to happen? <laughs> I think that with, with the way ballistics are now, the way shooting is now, why not take all that thousand yard know-how and be like, oh yeah, give me a 300 shot, dude. I'll tell you exactly where that thing's going to hit a 300 yard. Mm-hmm. So do you, you know, strive because on the range, I can go shoot 700, 800, 900 yards on the range. No problem. And when I'm in a real world hunting situation with real animals out there, you know, that I need to recover and I can't risk having a bad shot on. And I'm going to do my shooting 300, 400, 500 yards. I'm telling you, when I touch that trigger, I'm telling you what's going to happen. I'm yeah. telling you where that bullet's going to hit. And do you, do you just know your ballistics in your head or do you carry a chart with you? No, I know. You know what I like to know in my head? I like to know what I consider to be my, like, my my direct aim, you know. At what point do I need to start calculating for distance? So if you know that your rifle, if you take a lot of rifles nowadays and you put a 200-yard zero on them, I don't mean rifles nowadays, I mean, like, you take, you know, 270, 7-millimeter, 30-06, 300, whatever, and you throw it so you, you're sighting in at 200 yards, you DOB at 200 yards, you're generally going to hold point of impact out past 300 yards, mm-hmm. right? And the, the bullet will drop a few inches, but on a big game-sized animal, where there's a little, you know, there's a little room for error, you'll know that if, if that thing's within 325 yards, say, whatever you determine to be true for your own rifle, you know, out to 325, I know that I can aim on the center you know, center shoulder, the crease behind the shoulder, center body, and I'm in the money, right? I know where I'm at. I like to know that in my head, okay? But beyond that, I will do one of two things. I'll put, I'll tape a little thing to my scope. I'll tape a clip chart to my scope going out to 7,800 yards. My clip chart might go out farther than I know that I would really take a shot because there could be a situation where I might do that. Especially you get in a situation where you got a you know you got a crippled animal, right? So I'll have a click chart that goes far beyond what I would take as an initial shot, just as an emergency backup. Like why not? I got plenty of pen and paper. You know, I'll make a click chart that goes out to infinity if I have to. Mm-hmm. Put it on there. I'll tape it on the thing. I also carry a bino pouch. So sometimes I'll have me a little click chart that I just put in this pocket of my bino pouch where I can get at it. I even have some notes marked on the cover of my bino pouch that I wrote with a Sharpie inside the thing so I can lift up the pouch and I got notes right in there so that if, even if I'm laying down in the shot moment, I can still refer to it. I also keep all my stuff on a phone. I use a, I use a ballistics app, ballistics calculator. Let's say you kind of have a personal limit. You don't like to shoot beyond 400 yards. A lot of that stuff's not profoundly affected by those differences in elevation or differences in temperature quite like thousand yard shooting is. Right. But it's good to know about it. It's good to, like I said, to take that thousand yard thinking and that thousand yard technology and bring it down and to apply it to what you're comfortable with in the field, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's, 
that's my personal sort of philosophy on this stuff, man. I like to hang out with long range shooters and shoot with long range shooters because frankly, they know a lot more than short range shooters. Right. Oh yeah. Why not pick up that information, man? Why not have a scope that's capable of that? You know, I like to know that my gear is, that my gear is as good as I could afford. Right. And that my gear is not the limiting factor. When something goes wrong, I like to be that Steve screwed up, not that my gear screwed up. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that's the the main point is is get the best optics that you can afford. You know, you don't have to break the bank, but it is an investment. Uh, but it's like it's like you alluded to earlier. Your buddy would rather take the uh, the hundred dollar rifle and put a nine hundred dollar scope on it than the other way around. So. Yeah, I'm telling you, man, boots and boots and boots and binos. I've seen more hunts ruined. I know we're not talking about boots right now. I've seen more hunts ruined by boots than anything else. You know, people get worked up about whatever, what this and what that, you know, and what pattern, camo, and I'm telling you, boots, (laughs) like especially like active hunts, you know, Western kind of hunts, Alaska kind of hunts. I've seen boots ruin more hunts than any other thing. I'll tell you what I've seen drive people's efficacy as a hunter down more than anything. So not just that it ruined the hunt, but that it made them not a good hunter, didn't allow them to live up their capabilities, is that they bring along bad optics yeah. that just aren't up to the task. Right. You know, and you're just not seeing what. And I'm not talking about just killing animals. I'm talking about enjoying your time out there and seeing amazing things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't care. If you got to sell your new truck and buy an old junkie truck, in order to then take the money and buy some good binoculars, do that. <laughs> right on. Right the dude on, that I, pulls I, up the trail, yeah, the dude that pulls up the trail in the fifty thousand dollar pickup with twenty dollar binoculars, I will never understand. <laughs> yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Well, hey, uh, last question. You know, and this is from this past season. You actually ate a coyote. I mean, that couldn't have tasted good. No. It didn't, uh, let me tell you this, it didn't taste good, but it didn't taste as bad as I thought it would. I think my friend Remy put it best, where he tasted it and thought about it for a long time, and a lot of your listeners will probably understand this. He thought it tasted like a diver duck. So if you've ever eaten a bluebell, golden eye, <laughs> yeah, he thought, he thought that it had like, a, and it did, it had a strange duck-like quality to it. But it really wasn't as bad as you'd think it was, but it was not. I'm not gonna be like, holy smoke! There's a coyote. Let's get him and eat him yeah. anymore. But I had to, I had to even have wondered about it so long, and for some reason, people always ask me if I've ever eaten one. Yeah, well, it's just something know, that people think about, you know. It's like when I first started duck hunting ten or twelve years ago, we used to shoot mergansers and uh, hooded mergansers. I mean, talk about something worse than a diver. That was pretty. <laughs> that was pretty intense. <laughs> yeah, see, I let those I let those guys pass, and 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 uh, I will continue to to let coyotes pass at least on a at least on a meat front. You know, I mean, you really can't beat yeah, you can't beat that hide, man. But um, yeah. But uh, but on a meat front, I'm not into it. Well, hey, Steve, great stuff today, man. Uh, y'all check it out, Meat Eater. New episodes coming up this summer, 7 p.m. Central on Sportsman's Channel. Uh, thanks again for your time. Always a treat to check in with you, and uh, we'll do it again soon, my friend. Thanks a lot. Take care of yourself. All right. There he goes, our good bud, Stephen Ranella of Meat Eater TV. Uh, if you haven't read his book, by the way, uh, also titled Meat Eater, I suggest that you check it out. It's a great read. Uh, unfortunately, we are out of time for this morning. Uh, thanks to Steve, as well as our other guest today, Captain Scott Summerlot. Uh 
Certainly appreciate his contribution to the show. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Until next time, I'm Cable Smith saying y'all have a great week in the outdoors. We were raising cane and swapping songs. Cable Smith here for the Seat Shop. That outdoor lifestyle we all love, yeah, it can be pretty rough on the interior of our trucks. That's why I trust my friends at the Seat Shop. Is your driver's seat ripped where you slide in and out of your truck or SUV? They can replace that one cover, and the new leather is guaranteed to match your factory interior. Or if you want to overhaul your full front row or your entire interior like I did, the Seat Shop can definitely take care of you. And if you're looking for something to protect your leather, they've got the new Carhartt seat covers as well. Perfect for hauling gear, guns, and dogs around. Guys, the Seat Shop is a great family-owned company who really knows their stuff, and their old-fashioned customer service is a hard thing to find these days. I had a great time working with them, and I know you will too. So visit theseatshop.com or give them a call at 214-710-2565 today. If you're in the market for a compact track loader, then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at Bobcat of Dallas-Lewisville, Bobcat of Fort Worth, and Bobcat of Longview. Visit BobcatofDallas.com or call 469-586-0000 today.